If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Jude. I'm just going to read all 25 verses. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I, found it, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long ago beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. But Michael, the archangel, when he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men blaspheme all the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs at your, in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. But Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, also prophesies about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts, and their mouth speaks arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. But you, beloved, must remember the words that, are spoke, that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts, 
These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having a spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy. And for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. And on others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I just asked this question, why is the book of Jude one of the most neglected books of the Bible in our day and age? One man wrote, the message of Jude is alien to many in today's world, for Jude emphasized that the Lord will certainly judge evil intruders who are attempting to corrupt the church. The message of judgment strikes many in our world as intolerant, unloving, and contrary to the message of love proclaimed elsewhere in the New Testament. Why do we need to study the book of Jude in our day and time? Another man writes, The brief book of Jude packs a powerful punch. Though often neglected by preachers and teachers, God has given this letter to his church to provide it with the diet it needs for full spiritual health. There are certainly aspects of the book which are not straightforward to handle, particularly its references to material outside the Old Testament, the Archangel Michael and Enoch's prophecy. Further, there is plenty of material referring to judgment which might be unconjugal to modern ears. However, the book's clarion call for the church to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints is an enduring challenge which we need to heed. Without this book, we would be seriously deficient in our understanding of how we should respond in situations where the faith is under threat. But with this book correctly handled and understood, we have a call to arms as we engage in the task of defending and confirming the gospel. He ends with Philippians 1.7, for it is For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. And that's Paul talking to the church. And in Jude 3, we've looked at the purpose of the letter, contend earnestly for the faith. In Jude 4, we saw the problem and danger for the church. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And we've called these certain persons imposters. Previously, I stated that Jude has an analytical mind, and therefore Jude writes an analytical letter or sermon. These analytical letters offer a clear point of view, are well organized around a main idea, addressing opposing arguments and they are thoroughly supported by primary and secondary sources, 
And we've been looking at those sources. And today we'll see another secondary source. Today our focus will be on Jude 14 and 15, in which Jude will use another secondary, secondary source to prove his argument against the imposters and show the church and warn everyone in the church community that is living a life of ungodliness that it will lead to destruction and the destruction of every ungodly person. It doesn't matter if you're in the church or not. If you're ungodly, it will lead to your destruction. So let me read that, those two verses again. Jude 14 and 15. But Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam, also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude starts his argument by quoting from the apocryphal book, First Enoch. And First Enoch was a well-known book in the first century of the Christian era. It was, highly re- it was a highly respected volume of religious writing, writings in the two centuries before and after the birth of Jesus Christ. First Enoch is not considered to be canonical scripture by any religious group. Nobody has ever thought it's the Bible or actually scripture written by God. Archaeologists discovered fragments of First Enoch written in Aramaic among with the dead, along with the Dead Sea Scrolls sometime between 1947 and 1956 in the caves on the northwestern shores of the Dead Sea. So did Jude use the quotation from First Enoch because he believed it was scripture? The answer, no. Jude was quoting well-known writings to prove his point, just as Paul did in Athens and in Paul's letter to Titus. Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. And that's just Paul quoting poets of the time. He doesn't believe they're inspired. He's just pointing out the truth. Titus 1, 12 through 13. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And Paul's just telling them, yeah, your own people know who you are. All the people on the island of Crete. So why did Jude quote from 1 Enoch instead of quoting from the Bible here? One man writes... Jude probably cited a part of 1st Enoch that he considered to be genuine prophecy. Perhaps he referred to Enoch because the adversaries treasured the work, and thereby he used their own ammunition against them. And we see this a lot. These imposters that come into the church, they always bring outside literature or outside teachings to interpret the Bible for you. You have the Holy Spirit. You can interpret it yourself, but they usually look at outside writings and influences. It is common in our day to use other materials besides the Bible to debate one another or to contend for the faith. And yes, it is common for the better or the worse. 
Christians use sources other than the Bible to debate with others in or out of the church. And I said, for better or for worse. For the better, we use creeds, catechisms, and confessions that have been passed down throughout church history in order to train our minds to think biblically and help us contend for the faith biblically. And I would say that's for the better. We're training ourselves to go to the scriptures and contend for the faith. But for the worse, we use other sources sources such as books from our favorite authors or sermons from our favorite preachers that are good resources when we use them correctly to train our own minds to think biblically and contend for the faith biblically. But I say for the worse because we don't actually make the argument or contend for the faith biblically ourselves. We just give a person a book from our favorite author or we send a person a sermon from our favorite preacher and say to that person, you must read this book or you must listen to this sermon in order to make my argument. In other words, we let someone else contend for the faith in our place for various reasons that we're not going to look at right now. But we've all done it. And it's big in the Reformed movement. You want to make an argument? Instead of actually making it from the Scripture, you just send them your favorite book, or you have to listen to this sermon. As if that's making an argument. So Jude is using a source other than the Bible for the better, because he is using a source that agrees with the Bible, and he himself is contending for the faith against the imposters, as well as training the church to contend for the faith at the same time. So let's start on Jude 14. But Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam... Why does Jude give us this detail about Enoch being the seventh generation from Adam? I'll give you three reasons. First, Jude is being clear about which Enoch this prophecy came from. Jude is distinguishing this Enoch, who was a descendant of Seth and was born in the seventh generation, from the Enoch who was a descendant of Cain and born in the third generation. So we see in that genealogy there's two Enochs. Second, Jude is making clear that his readers knew that this Enoch was a real person who was written about in Genesis 5, and this Enoch was a man who had a special relationship with God because he walked with God, and he is the only person in human history who did not die but went to be with God. Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The only man written down in human history that actually went with God and did not die because of his sin. Third, this may have been important to some of Jude's readers as the Jewish people saw that the number seven signifies completion or fullness or perfection. So that just might have sparked their attention. Wait, seventh? Enoch? I might want to listen to him. Back to Jude 14. Enoch also also prophesied about these men. So this prophecy is written in 1 Enoch 1.9, in which the author is unknown, but some believe that these writings came from Enoch's words passed down through the generations. In 1 Enoch 1.9, Behold, he will arrive with ten million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. 
He will destroy the wicked ones and censor all flesh on account of everything that they have done, that which sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. And so I just quoted that from First Enoch, but notice how Jude, he does not refer to this as scripture as he omits the common phrase, it is written before he used this phrase from First Enoch. And that's most New Testament, the New Testament writers, whenever they're talking about Scripture, they say, it is written, and then they quote it. But Jude doesn't do that here. Jude is simply making the point that Enoch's prophecy is the truth about what God will do in the future. The word prophesied here is not designated as being Scripture, but it means that it is an utterance or saying from God, which makes sense when we just read the Genesis account that described Enoch as a man who walked with God. He's a man who walked with God. He had a special relationship, so he knows the truths of God. We have many examples in the scriptures where people prophesy in the same way as Enoch's prophecy. The first example I'll give you was, we'll just stick with one example, but I'll give you the example of the high priest Caiaphas. He was an unbeliever, and he prophesied about the death of Jesus. John eleven forty nine through 52. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that there is, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So this man made a prophecy as well as an unbeliever. And we see that happen time and time again throughout the Bible. So who did Enoch prophesy about? Well, in Jude 14, Enoch also prophesied about these men. So Jude emphasized that Enoch's prophecy, although it was speaking in general terms of the ungodly, it included these impostors that have crept into the church unnoticed. Enoch prophesied about them as well. So back to Jude 14. But Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. And the word behold here is used to get everyone's attention and means to fix your mind upon, to observe very carefully, or to see with attention. John the Baptist used this word behold to get everyone to fix their eyes upon Jesus. John 1, 29. On the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, lift your ears, listen up. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Enoch, using the word behold here, is speaking about the second coming of the Lord as if it were right in front of his eyes. It says, he came, behold. He came, the Lord came. And Enoch saying, behold. The Lord came, as if it already happened, as as if Enoch already saw it. It was before his eyes. 
So this is the aorist tense here. And Greg spoke on that a while back, so we won't take any time on that. But the question is, do you think about the Lord coming again in this way? Do you think it's right before my eyes? He's already come. These imposters are already being judged. Faith says that Jesus Christ's second coming is always in front of us. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So our faith tells us that Jesus will come again, even though we don't see it, as if it's already happened. We'll look at that a little more later. Back to Jude 14. The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Jude says that Enoch's prophecy is about Christ's return, otherwise known as the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus will bring many with him when he returns, which we see in the scriptures. Matthew 25 and 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The Bible does not give us the exact number of his holy ones that will come with him, but it does refer to it as a large number that we can't comprehend. So some of the cults have already added up the numbers, and they have the numbers, but we don't because Scripture doesn't give it to us. But it does tell us there will be many, and there's many Scriptures that talk about it. And back to Jude 14 and 15. But Enoch also prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came to execute judgment upon all. Jude is contending for the faith here by confirming that even Enoch prophesied about the truth of the gospel, mainly that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. He came the first time to save sinners, but the second time he comes to judge to condemn, and to convict. Do you ever share this truth of the gospel? The apostles were commanded to share this part of the gospel. This is part of the faith. This is part of the gospel. Is he will judge the living and the dead, this Jesus Christ, whom some say is just really weak and can't do much. No, he'll come. He is the Lord of lords, King of kings. He'll come with a sword. Acts 10, 33 through 43, we see this commanded. Now then, we are all present before God to hear all that you have been ordered by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most truly comprehend now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the one who fears him and does righteousness is welcome to him. As for the word which he sent, to the sons of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which happened throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on the tree. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he appear, 
not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and solemnly to bear witness that this is the one who has been designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. See, Peter was specific. They were commanded to talk about Jesus being the righteous one who will judge the living and the dead. That should be part of our gospel. Though it's not for many today. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day that Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. Every human being will stand before Jesus Christ to judge. The righteous will be acquitted through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, but the ungodly will receive their just punishment. That should be part of our gospel. It's not hateful, it's just a warning. It's a warning that we warn them out of love. Jude 15. He came to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. To convict here means to determine the charge against them, to prove that they are guilty, to convince them or show them their sins against God. And that's what Christ will do. One man writes, In the judgment day the unbelievers cannot claim ignorance, for they have received warnings throughout history. In fact, the ungodly deliberately ignore these admissions and monitions and sin regardless. Romans 1, 18-19 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How will Jesus convict these men? Jesus will show everyone the sins in which they have committed. Revelation twenty, twelve. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. All of our sinful deeds will be exposed in that judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's showing that everybody will sit in that judgment seat. But as I said, those who believe will be acquitted. Their sins have been paid for. 
But those who don't, there will be punishment, eternal punishment, as we've seen throughout the book of Jude. So back to Jude 15. And to convict, who will he convict? All the ungodly. And ungodly here means all those without worship. One commentator writes, Ungodliness is a sin that is often spoke about, but few people know what it means. The word means without worship. Worship is the chief important activity for people to be engaged in. In worship, a created person shows his respect for God. In this sense, it stands for the whole subjection and obedience that we owe God. And when any part of that service, respect, or honor is denied or withheld, we are guilty of ungodliness. What is godliness? Godliness is a total respect for God's glory and a life lived for God's glory. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's a picture of godliness, living, living on his behalf, living for him, no longer for yourself because of what he's done. Back to Jude 15. And to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude 15 says that the Lord will convict the ungodly impostors for two separate crimes. The Lord Jesus will convict these impostors for their ungodly deeds that they have committed and their harsh words that they have spoken against him. So let's look at the deeds. We've been looking at these throughout the whole Bible, so we're not going to focus right on them, but Jude 15, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way. This refers, because he's talking about the impostors, this refers back to verses 5 through 13 and forward to verse 16, where we see the root sins of stubbornness, rebellion, and pride cause the fruit sins of rejecting authority, defiling the flesh, caring only for themselves, following after their own lusts, and flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. That's the ungodly deeds that these impostors will face when they face the judgment of God. And all of these sinful deeds are against God himself. Back to Jude 15. And to convict all the ungodly of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And this too refers to these impostors. And it refers back to verses 5 through 13 and 4 to 16 where we see that the root sin of unbelief causes the fruit sin of blaspheming the glorious ones, blaspheming the things which they do not understand, grumbling, finding fault, and speaking arrogantly. All of these sinful words are against God himself. Even though, like Luke was saying earlier, they're lashed out against you. They're lashed out against the righteous. They're spoken about against the Christians. But they're against God himself. All sin is against God, and God sees all sin. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. We see that all sin is against God himself. Back to Jude 14 and 15. I'll read it again. But Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And I'll make two observations for us to think about this week. First, as Christians, we should look at the coming of the Lord Jesus with joy, eagerness, and anticipation, as if he were coming soon. Because Jesus has already started the process in us that he will bring to completion. Jesus' coming is already in the past tense for us. Romans 8, 28, 30 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, because those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Once your salvation begins, it cannot be stopped. Once he causes you to be born again, you will be justified, sanctified, adopted, and glorified. You can't stop it. It's already happened. It's already been written in the book of life. But the same goes for these imposters. They've already been condemned. They've already been judged. Their evil deeds and their evil words are already against him. 1 John 3, 1-2 See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not been made manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. We anticipate the second coming, because we'll be with him and we'll be like him in our glorified bodies. We should look forward to it. We should live like it's going to happen now. And Enoch has already seen it. Second observation. We should contend for the faith against the imposters and evangelize warning unbelievers about Jesus Christ coming again to judge the living and the dead without the fear of man. We should be able to tell them about this without fearing them. As we heard earlier, they may kill us for it, but we shouldn't fear that. Listen to our Lord and Master, Matthew 10, 32-39. 
Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. We should think about this when evangelizing, that they can't hurt us, but they need to hear the gospel to be saved. We can tell them, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God before it's time. When he comes, he will judge you in righteousness, and you will not withstand that judgment. should be part of our message. I'll end right here. One man writes about his second coming. At his call, the dead awaken. Rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? We should think about that. What will become of thee? Amen.